Hey, we're doing this finally after so many attempts. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Anastasia. That's what I go by on my social media, but the short version of my name is Nastya, so I'll go by that from now on. I'm a national reporter at the Kiev Independent, and I'm really excited to do this podcast with two of my girlfriends. Do you guys want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Agata, uh, and I am the co-founder of The Shadows Project, along with Kat here, and I also study at the Sciences Po. Hi, everyone. I'm Kat, or Katerina. I'm also a co-founder of The Shadows Project, and I'm an international relations student at Stanford with a focus on security. All of us are Ukrainians, and when the war began, we realized that we have access to all of these amazing experts and amazing Ukrainians who surely have a lot to say. So we thought it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't try talking to them and share that with the world. So here we are. Plus, we also, of course, uh, think about the war every day. We talk about it. And we thought that since we're having these discussions, it would be great if uh, we could probably have them on a larger scale, as you said, with experts, with people that are in Ukraine now and kind of have the world listen in. So Agata is also based in France and Kat is in San Francisco. And I am uh, mainly in Kiev, but also moving around for work. Well, I guess let's just get right to it. Today we will be talking about February 24th the day no Ukrainian will likely ever forget. At four in the morning, millions of people across the country woke up from the sounds of sirens, explosions, and calls from their loved ones, telling them that their country was under attack. So in the weeks leading up to Russia's attack, I remember the Western media just couldn't wrap their heads around how calm Ukrainians were. Despite all of these constant American and European alerts about an imminent Russian invasion, life in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities truly went on as normal. No one panicked, no one was fleeing the country, and in fact, in early February, polls showed that around half the country didn't even believe that the danger of a Russian invasion was real. Full-scale war seemed to be this abstract idea that many of us discussed, but very few actually believed in. Today, we'll be sharing many stories from that day, the day that changed our lives forever. You'll hear from us, the hosts, but also other Ukrainians about where we all were on that fateful night what we were doing, and how we learned that our home was under attack. You will also hear from Olga Rudenko, the chief editor at the Kiev Independent, about her decision-making that night, having to make the immediate calls about evacuations, but also news coverage, as Ukrainian journalists across the country navigated turning into war correspondents overnight. It was a very regular night. Some of us were on trains, some of us having dinner, others fast asleep. None of us could have imagined what was about to come. So here's how it all began, starting with Nastya. I will definitely never forget the night of February 24th. It was around 3 a.m. I knew Putin was about to give a speech, so I stayed up late waiting for his address. And just three days earlier, he already gave a speech, spending over an hour on ludicrous lies about Ukraine and its history, going as far as to say that modern Ukraine was created by Lenin himself. My colleague Alex Suhov wrote a great piece breaking down Putin's false narratives that he uses to justify Russia's aggression. We'll link it in the description of this episode so you can check it out. So I stayed up because it was impossible to sleep anyway. It really felt as if the whole nation was awake, just anticipating something to happen. The fighting in Donbass has been escalating significantly 
the week before. The Russian army was shelling Ukrainian territory all across the front line, basically nonstop. So I put on the Ukrainian news live stream on YouTube and saw tens of thousands of people watching the news in the middle of the night. It was clear that something was coming. So the speech began, and as it went, my Twitter feed just went crazy. People were terrified. From the very beginning, Putin's words sounded more and more like a declaration of war. I mean, it was nothing new. The Russian dictator blamed NATO and the West for expanding and allegedly threatening Russia's security. He reminisced about Soviet times. And then, there it was. I decided to conduct a special military operation. It aims to protect people who have been bullied and subjected to genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. For that, we will strive for demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and will bring to justice those who committed multiple bloody crimes against civilians, including Russian citizens. It was 4.48 on the morning of February 24th. I looked at our newsroom chat. My colleagues wrote one word. War. Minutes later, people began hearing loud explosions in Kyiv. There were also explosions reported in other cities all over Ukraine. Odessa, Kharkiv, Mariupol, Mykolaiv, Kramatorsk. All over the country. Meanwhile, I was sitting cross-legged on my bed in a small room of my shared apartment in a city an hour away from Paris. I was in the third year of my bachelor's degree, doing an exchange program at Po, a school of political science in France. I tried to wrap my head around what to do next. It was terrifying on many levels, but the worst of all was the uncertainty and the fear of the unknown. I immediately texted my mother, who lives on the outskirts of Kiev, near Irpin, but she was asleep. I decided against waking her up because, I mean, I knew for a fact that she wouldn't leave home anyway, and I was right, she stayed at our family house under constant shelling for nearly a month up until Russian tanks began approaching our village. So, anyway, eventually, my journalistic instinct kicked in. I quickly understood that I had this huge privilege of being in safety, a privilege that all of my other colleagues did not have. So I knew that I had to stay awake for as long as possible to cover the news while others were packing, relocating, making potentially life-saving decisions. I slept maybe four hours in total in the next few days, but that was Honestly, nothing compared to my colleagues who filed from bomb shelters, cars that were stuck in traffic, or their friends' bathrooms and hallways because their own homes were no longer safe. Sorry, I was just interrupted by the air siren. This is Olya, our chief editor at the Kiev Independent. Her leadership and perseverance truly remain a mystery to me. Through all of this hell, she's been responsible not only for her own safety and the well-being of her family, but also dozens of people on our team, myself included. Her experience of February 24th was quite different from everyone else's. Apart from having to take a lot of decisions, personal decisions about our families, moving them to safety, relocating or not relocating and so on, we also needed to figure out how we cover that, how we cover the war that, that came to our doors, how we do it best. And the, first, the very first decision that we had to make came in the first minutes 
because we uh, we were watching um, Russian President Vladimir Putin making that insane TV announcement about how uh, he is declaring um, a special military operation. So I pre-wrote a tiny news item that I hoped I wouldn't have to publish. And the headline on that was Putin declares war on Ukraine. We all very quickly agreed that we had to call it what it is, regardless of how the Kremlin is going to be spinning it. That news item is still on the website with the headline, Putin declares war on Ukraine, all in caps lock. I was really proud later the day that we went for it when I saw websites like, I think, I may be wrong, but I think it was the New York Times who, but I'm sure many others too, who did the um, the headline saying Putin, Putin starts a military operation against Ukraine or something like that. And, you know, which, which I think was the very wrong thing to do because this is, this is a, an authoritarian dictator who has been like twisting narratives and calling things not what they are is one of the main things he does. And falling for that, for journalists, I think it's very wrong. I mean, if he comes out, if he starts killing people and he calls it a special operation, you don't fall for it. You, know? you, don't, you don't call it a special operation if he called it so. It's a war what it is. And you, you know, as a journalist, it's your job to, to, to see things with your own eyes and to, you know, to define what they are and not to just follow someone's lead and, you know, He says it's a special operation, so we're going to call it special operation. This is both. Sorry. A few days before the invasion, I remember Ola asking everyone in the team to tell her about their contingency plans for the worst case scenario. Who plans to stay in Kiev? Who will relocate and where? And so on. So when it began, she was already aware of everyone's general whereabouts. Then I had to, you know, we, we um, made some very basic editorial decisions. Like we started to... Um, Uh, a live update about everything that is happening. We define like who's who's doing what right now. And uh, after that, to be honest, um, I I did something that probably very unusual for uh, the morning of the war, uh, which was I actually took a little nap because I haven't slept that night and I haven't slept much for several nights because it was a very intense week with the build up to the war. And I was really counting, counting on that night. I thought that that was going to be the night when I finally get some sleep. And of course, that didn't happen. So yes, at about 8 a.m., um, probably three hours after the invasion started, I actually um, laid down and uh, had a nap. And it's strange to remember it now, but I just felt like I, I'm, I'm always going to stop functioning if I don't. And, um, and then uh, a tough uh, personal decision came because I need to decide whether I leave key or not. And I didn't make any specific plans for myself. Um, my biggest concern was that the communications might go down, like the internet and mobile connection, which would, would mean, since we didn't have any satellite phones back then or anything like that, it would mean that I would not be able to work. And also, uh, if I have to spend most days uh, in a bomb shelter, Uh, the, the only bomb shelter that was accessible to me that was near my place was uh, the nearest metro station where there was no internet. Um, and also at the same time, I realized that if, if Kiev was invaded, then, you know, I would probably be targeted as a journalist. 
So uh, I made a very difficult decision and I took a train out of Kyiv on the night of February 24th. My other colleague, Kiev's head of investigations, Anya Miranyuk, was also torn about her decision to leave Kyiv. On the second day of Russia's full-out war against Ukraine, I left Kyiv. It was the hardest decision to make. I didn't want to go, but my friends persuaded me that it was the time to evacuate. Um, as they put it, if we linger any longer, um, it would be too late and we would get stuck uh, in Kyiv. And so they drove to Vinnytsia, a city roughly 300 kilometers southwest of Kyiv. That drive would usually take someone around three hours. For Anya and her friends, though, it took almost 13. So as we were driving very slowly there, um, stuck in traffic jams, I couldn't help but think that it was the wrong decision and I want to return back. It just felt so wrong to abandon my city, the city I love, the city I live in, um, And also it felt wrong on many levels, the fact that some of my friends stayed and we got separated and my mother stayed in another town um, not far away from Kiev, which at the point I perceived as safe. The name of this town is Bucha, now infamous around the globe for the horrible atrocities Russia's soldiers committed there. Eventually in a week I returned back to Kiev Of course, I planned to stay in Kiev and never abandon this city again. She has been in Kiev ever since, only leaving the place she loves most to do what she loves even more, report. We'll link some of her stories from Odessa and other Ukrainian cities in the description of this episode. Be sure to check them out. For the next few days, I remember just being numb. Numb with gut-wrenching fear, panic, and shock, as more and more photos of houses bombed and people killed began emerging online. But the worst thing is, by now, three months later, I have probably gotten used to it. The war for me actually started on February 23rd, 2022, a day earlier. I was in Palo Alto, California, and because of the time difference, I was almost half a day ahead or behind Moscow time. So while President Putin was making an address in the early hours of the morning in Moscow, it was evening of the 23rd for me. I remember that he was meant to go on at 6.30 or 6.45 p.m. for me. And I remember so distinctly thinking I should hurry to finish dinner so that I can have time to hop in the shower before the war begins. And I did think that the war was going to begin. I had a very bad feeling, and I think every Ukrainian was going through different stages of emotions in the weeks leading up to the war. I personally thought that it was coming. I had an impending feeling of doom. And I did believe that it was going to happen. But my father, who's from Odessa, did not necessarily feel the same way. And I remember even in the days leading up to the war, I would text him saying, have you um, 
Well, I, I would often accuse my father of being in denial. And I remember even in the days leading up to the war, I would text him saying, have you snapped into reality yet? Are you prepared for what's going to happen? And to the very last moment, my dad denied that anything was going to happen. So I'm sitting in my college dorm and I'm thinking, I should probably shower before my world collapses. And I didn't. And I think the reason I didn't was because I didn't want to kind of speak it into existence in a way. I thought, no, I'm not going to make doomsday preparations until I have to. I'm not going to act paranoid. So I didn't. I did not take my shower. I came back from dinner. I went to sit down in my room. I turned on the address. I'm sitting at my desk. And before long, I, the, fateful, the fateful line comes on. And Putin says that he's going to undertake a special military operation to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. And by that time, I already knew what was going to happen. And the, that phrase kind of rings in my mind and plays in my mind over and over. I, I can't describe the feeling of the feeling I got when I heard that, that special military operation, that demilitarize and denazify. And that's when I knew that this was worse than I could have ever imagined, that this was not going to be simply a war, but it was going to be an attack on our identity. It was going to be a genocide. It was going to be a massacre. The, the way that he declared his actions and the way that Putin was speaking about what was about to come, I just knew that it was going to be so much worse than I could have ever imagined. And I didn't even finish the address. I was already on the phone with my mom as soon as Putin finished saying his infamous line. And my mom was already crying. I was already crying. We didn't know what was happening. I, I, I called her and I didn't know what to say. And I remember the weeks before the war, when I had this impending feeling of doom, I, I kept calling my mom, asking her if I could just fly back to Kiev and just see it one more time. And and the kind of desperation that I felt when I called her in that moment, I, I was so angry that she hadn't let me go to see Kiev. And I called her and I just remember being so angry and saying, why didn't you let me go? I need to go now. I need to go see it. Why? Why? Why didn't I get to see it one last time? I didn't know what was going to happen to Kiev at the time, of course. My dad, meanwhile, was uh, in another part of the house. He had not even been watching the address. He was downstairs making dinner. So I call my dad and he picks up the phone. And he says, you know, what's up? How are you? In his usual voice, he, I'm crying. Instantly, he realizes something's wrong. And I say, are you watching the TV? Are you watching Putin? He's declaring war. My dad scrambles to turn on the TV, catches the the end of the address, we start getting notifications that Kiev is being bombed, Odessa is being bombed, and and my dad's just there in shock. Um, I don't think that he, I mean, he never imagined that this was going to happen. And I, he's just watching the TV in complete and utter shock. And I'm crying and I'm kind of screaming, I told you so, I told you so. And it was the least satisfying, I told you so, that I've ever said in my life, probably. And that's how it all happened. I, I hung up on my parents. Um, everyone was scrambling. My mom and my dad instantly start scrambling to reach out to our relatives to try and evacuate them. And meanwhile, me, I'm in my college dorm 
My roommates at this point already know what's happening. They come in. They're in the room quietly there just for for company, for support. At the very end of the night, they had baked me cookies with the Ukrainian flag while I was spending my night crying. I remember I needed to take a shower and get in bed, but I couldn't tear myself away from my phone. I asked my roommate if she would come in and stand in the bathroom while I showered and, and check my phone and read aloud any notifications um, that were coming in. And I got in bed and I remember I, I turned on a live stream of Maidan in Kiev, where I grew up. I grew up right around the corner from Maidan and I turned on the live stream and I was glued to the live stream. I heard the sirens from the live stream all night. And I just remember watching and thinking, that I was going to see tanks rolling down the streets and that I was going to see, I, I didn't know what I was expecting to see, but I could not tear myself away from that live stream. And all I could do was watch and, and wait and see what would happen. And it was the most helpless I've ever felt. It was honestly, truly rock bottom. I mean, I think that day, I, I don't think anything could ever compare to those first few days. And I don't remember when I went to bed. The first few days, I think I must have gone to bed for a handful of hours total. I would go to sleep at 6 a.m. I would spend all night with my notifications on, the phone constantly ringing, phone constantly buzzing, sirens going off in the background on the live streams. Um, any little thing, I would jolt awake, not let myself sleep. Um, I was trying to get my family evacuated. And, but those kind of, first few days, the worst days of my life were followed by those, those emotions of hopelessness and desperation and fear and anger were also followed by some of the strongest emotions I've ever felt of love, of pride. After the three days that Kiev was expected to fall and it was still standing, I just, I, I don't think I've ever felt more of an all-encompassing pride in something. I just wanted to, I just wanted to run around. I just wanted to scream. I just wanted to give every single defender a hug. And I I think that after three days, when the world started to wake up and realize that Kiev was not going to fall, um, nothing compares to that overwhelming feeling of pride in my country. And, and yes, and I guess that's that. That's how the war began for me. And all I can say is that those first few days taught me the ranges of human emotion that I never thought I would ever feel or experience. But most of all, it taught me love, taught me strength, and it taught me what it really means to be Ukrainian. And I'm so, so proud that I am, and I could not be more grateful. My experience was actually quite the opposite. While on February 24th, Kat and Nastya were watching the war unravel minute by minute from afar, I was actually leaving the country with absolutely no idea that the war had just started. At five in the morning, when Ukrainians, including my family, woke up to the sounds of bombs, I was on the Polish border on my way to go finish my studies in Paris. In the months leading up to the invasion, I knew that um, I would probably need to leave to finish my exams and um, see my friends. But the decision to leave that very night was actually incredibly spontaneous. My flight was booked for the 28th of February. I was flying from Kiev. I was flying from Kiev to 
Paris directly. But as talk of the invasion loomed closer and closer, I was becoming a lot more panicky. And I was sensing that something was not right. And um, I think that's something that a lot of people did feel in Kiev in the last days before the war. But it was something very kind of unspoken. Um, I kind of draw even on my parents' experience um, when I talk about this because we've had these conversations a lot. And we had these conversations, you know, when everything seemed very normal up until the very last minutes. Because it seemed that nobody really wanted to believe that there would be an invasion, that there would be a full-scale war. Uh, my parents didn't even pack an emergency backpack, but they did fuel the car. And that's also why I think that in the back of a lot of people's minds, there was still the sense that um, this could happen, but nobody really wanted to believe it. And I didn't want to believe it either. Um, I was telling myself until the very last days that everything was going to be fine, that there wasn't going to be an invasion, you know, that this was just another provocative kind of attempt uh, to pressure and to put pressure on Ukraine. But then on February 21st, I heard Putin's speech. The prospect of a Russian military invasion of Ukraine has become even more realistic in the past few hours following a televised address by President Putin. He said he'd signed a decree recognizing two breakaway regions of Ukraine and insisted that history was on his side because Ukraine, in his view, was not a true nation. And that is when I made up my mind immediately. Um, that day I was still deciding, do I want to leave earlier? Do I want to fly? Do I want to take a train? Because I was worried about international flights being canceled and the possibility of me being stuck in Ukraine. Uh, since that's had already, you know, happened a week before, um, I was with my dad in Georgia and we had a lot of trouble coming back because, um, because of the fact that at first international flights were canceled. The moment I heard his speech, and the moment I heard him say that, um, you know, he was supporting the sovereign status of Donbass, I got up and I told my mom, I'm going to the train station and buying a ticket and I'm taking a train to Warsaw. And she looked at me, she said, OK. And that's what I did. And that's, I think, when in a lot of people's minds, and that's basically what I sensed that evening, that the whole country was very tense and the whole country was in, in anticipation what was going to happen, including myself. And so I left at 6 p.m. on February 23rd. I got on a train and I went to Warsaw. And in my train, I had two other people. It was an overnight train, so we had um, three beds. The woman below me was from Kharkiv. She was around 60 and she was going to uh, Poland to work. And then there was a boy above me who uh, was around 18, and he was from Luhansk. Luhansk is one of the main cities in Russian-occupied territories of Donbass, along with Donetsk. Both of them have been occupied since 2014. Back then, over a million of Ukrainians, just like this boy, fled from Russia's invasion. And now, many of these people must leave their homes once again. And everything was very calm. And, you know, very ordinary. These people were not escaping from war. They were, one of them was, the boy was visiting his uh, friends. The woman was going to work. Um, and even amongst them, there was none of this um, discussion that, you know, something is going to happen tonight. The panic came in the morning 
we crossed the border at around four, I would say. And I just remember uh, that I lost all connection. And the last notification that I had on my phone was breaking news from BBC, which said that Putin has declared a special military operation in the East. But that was it. And I think that that was something that a lot of people were expecting. You know, we had been at war for eight years, so an escalation in the East was not um, unlikely. But at nine in the morning, when we were one hour from Warsaw without any internet, I step outside and I hear a conversation between um, two men in the cabin next door. And they're talking about war. They're talking about bombings. One of the men, he goes outside and he starts talking on the phone with his family. And he's talking about um, cities, Mariupol, Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk. And he's asking his family, are you safe? Is it quiet that they stop bombing? And so immediately I'm thinking that, okay, so the war has begun. It has begun in the East. Um, but I'm not really sure, should I be panicking? Should I not be panicking? Because yes, I don't have internet, but my family hasn't called me yet. So my assumption is that they're safe and that Kiev is safe. Uh, I go back inside and the boy from Luhansk shows me a text message that he gets from his family. Again, no internet, just a text message that says one word, war. And that's when I start to panic. And that hour, that last hour before we arrived at the train station and I finally was hit with the reality of the situation um, was probably the hardest I've ever experienced in my life because the amount of scenarios that were going through my head were terrifying. But what was more terrifying is that none of them were as bad as the reality that actually hit and nothing could have prepared myself for the text messages that I received when I arrived from my family who was telling me that they're trying to drive out of Kiev um, and that they had to drive for three days following that to get to safety in the West under bomb raids and almost losing our cat to my friends that were hiding out in bomb shelters. And I arrive to Warsaw and I read all of this and I speak with my family, with my friends. But I also think that being hit with this reality, I never really had time to stop and process what had just happened. It was a shock for me, but it was a feeling of, okay, it has begun. Yes. And I accepted it. Um, you know, I don't think I even had a moment since February 24th to fully sit down and cry. First, I made sure my family, my friends were safe. And then right away, the next question that was ringing through my mind was, what can I do to help? How do I act? Because that's all that mattered to me then. And that's all that matters to me now. How, how do I help Ukraine? How do I help uh, my country um, that is suffering and that is going through such a horrible, horrible war? So months before Russia launched a full-scale attack um, on Ukraine, there were all of these alerts coming from the West, um, all, of, all of this intelligence saying that the invasion was imminent and we had multiple dates at which it was going to come. But no one in Ukraine seemed to still expect it to happen. What were you guys thinking when you were seeing all of these headlines saying Russia will attack on February 16th or a different day, all of these maps? 
thing, how they're going to try to encircle the entire country. What were your thinking through all of that? I think for me, I simultaneously expected and didn't expect it, if that makes sense, because knowing Ukraine and Russia's history and knowing Putin, I didn't see a way that he would create all of this stir without making doing some kind of big reveal. I, I just didn't see him backing down because it didn't make sense for me for him to be creating all this attention essentially for nothing. So I think deep down, especially considering the context and history of Ukraine and Russia, that there would be a full-scale invasion and that he would start some kind of provocation. But at the same time, even when I can rationally and logically expect it and understand that it's coming, that doesn't mean that I was emotionally prepared because you can't really emotionally prepare yourself for a war until it starts happening. And so even though I had this feeling deep down it would happen, I can't say that I was actually prepared at all. And it was still, you know, the biggest shock of my life in a way when it did happen. For me personally, I definitely agree that I don't think I was emotionally prepared for it at all. I think that I have this feeling in general that I sometimes tend to gaslight myself. And that might be something that other Ukrainians do as well, where I think that, I mean, it can't happen. It would be too, you know, too big of a a war or it's just another provocation because that's always what it is. And that's sometimes what you hear uh, other people say. And so you kind of convince yourself that, no, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. That would be too det detrimental. At least kind of that's what I thought about. So I think that I tried to prepare myself, but I don't think I was prepared at all. And I even remember this point actually, when um, we had an idea, uh, well, at Shadows to do kind of a series of testimonies and talk about what we were feeling. And I remember talking to you, Nastya, and being like, hey, what do you think about this idea? Do you want to share? Like, do you want to join in? And you were kind of like, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary to panic. So what were you going through? Because I remember this conversation yeah, vividly. I remember this too. We almost had an argument about it because I really, I, I'm so sorry, actually, now that I'm thinking <laughs> about this, because I remember, Agata, you saying how you and your friends are so worried and panicking about, you know, um, thinking that, you know, you might be in danger, that your family's in danger. Meanwhile, I was, you know, I was studying in France and I remember telling you like, guys, you all have to chill. Nothing's going to happen. I vividly remember sort of entirely gaslighting everyone. I was like, they're being so dramatic and taking it too far because so well, the thing is, it wasn't only our, you know, understanding or, or you know, our guess that nothing too big is going to happen. Yeah. It was also the Ukrainian government that was putting out all of these articles, you know, all of these Ukrainian defense military think tanks saying that, of course, they can't say anything for sure, but it is objectively way too costly. It's not really going to succeed. It's illogical, you know, looking at all factors like the way Ukrainians are going to resist, the way our army is prepared because we've been at war with Russia for eight years. Them you know, aiming at Kiev just made no sense. And to this day, it doesn't make any sense, which is why, you know, they've been, they, they haven't been successful in what they were trying to achieve. So I remember reading all of these articles. I remember reading my colleague, Ilya Panamarenka, Kiev Independent. I'm pretty sure he wrote an op-ed a few weeks before the invasion saying that, you know, everyone has to relax because this is all just warmongering. You know, this is what Russia does. They're going to pressure the West to, you know, into concessions and so on and so forth. So I was really one of those people who thought that everyone is taking it way too far in the West. And I um, entirely agree with Kat. I, I thought that 
there is going to be something in Donbass, just because Putin, you know, can't stage this whole show, this entire buildup, the entire world paying attention to him and then do nothing. That would not go well with his domestic audience. And that's all he cares about. So I knew that something's going to happen, some sort of escalation to make him look good, you know, to make the ratings go up. But of course, whatsoever, I did not expect anything even close to what's happening right now and what happened on February 24th. It was a complete shock. I had a similar conversation and slash almost argument with my dad actually about this because my dad was in Kiev a few days before the war started or the week before the war started. He was there and he was very, I asked him, I asked him how he felt to be in Kiev and what it was like and what his plans were. And I remember while he was in Kiev, he said, well, I'm here for the next few days. If Russia invades in the next few days, I'm going to stay and fight. Those are my plans. If not, I'll be coming home in a few days. And then he would say these things. But at the same time, every time that I texted him saying, I'm really worried, I'm scared, how's our family? He would simultaneously say, I don't know why you're texting me about this. This is all crazy. This is all nonsense. There's no way that this could ever happen. And it's the classic, this could never happen on European soil. There is no way that they would let this happen. And I remember the day before the war started, I texted him and I said, are you, have you got on, gotten over your crazy denial phase yet? Because this is going to start, I think. And he said, you know, he laughed it off and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it, I, it was the worst feeling in the world to call him after the war started and to kind of say, you know, it was the worst feeling in the world to have this, I told you so moment, because that's kind of not any, I don't get any satisfaction out of that. And so we had a similar conversation in my household. That's really interesting because I think I think all of us had these conversations probably. Definitely. Yeah, I had that with my dad. Uh, we were in Georgia a few weeks before and I was kind of going between these phases of like, I'm really feeling panicky and antsy when I'm talking to people to this phase where I'd like go talk to Nasty, for example, who would like put it in my head like, hey, Agata, like you're fine. Everything's going to be okay. Or, you know, people who obviously were a lot more... Um, you know, connected like minute by minute to what was happening and had a lot of rational explanations. And so when we were in Georgia, that's, I think, where I started to get very panicky because the moment I left Ukraine, I felt like everyone wanted to know and they kept asking like, you know, what is going to happen? Do you think there's going to be a war? That's all that people were talking about the moment that you said that, hey, we just came from Ukraine. And so we were actually in Georgia a week before the war started. Um, and I think that's when airlines exactly. started, you know, sending out all of these alerts that they're no longer flying to Kiev. Yeah. So that's literally what happened. We get, and the funny thing is we were made the decision last minute to, to actually go to Georgia. And we kept also just like putting it off because we were having these conversations about the war. And my dad's like, you know, if something starts, it's going to start at the end of the month. So it's OK. We still have a buffer. Uh, time and I think it was around. The, he was right on schedule. He was. He was though. To, to be fair, it was around the tenth or something like that of or the twelfth of uh, February. And so we go the day literally we land in the airport and uh, the news come out that the invasion is going to start in like a week and on so, the sixteenth. Yeah. And so we're like, do we go back? Do we stay? And we make the decision at first that we're going to stay because my dad says, you know, it's okay. The investors don't believe that there's going to be. <laughs> The stock market doesn't believe that the Russians got innovate. So that was the last, that literally the, the only kind of um, 
sentiment at that point that it's like it's not gonna happen everyone else is already saying yes it will people will try to find any <laughs> sort of rationalization that they want it doesn't even matter how much sense <laughs> yeah. it makes and so then um two days later i remember this like perfectly it's midday and we're snowboarding and i i check the news and i think that's when nastia sends me the message that international flights are canceled and we're sitting in georgia and we're sitting nine hours away from Belisi by car um, and, you know, a flight away from, from Kiev, which that's at least a day of travel if we leave right away. That sounds so crazy now, considering that right now, yeah, to go anywhere out of Ukraine, you have to drive for a day yeah. and then take train. Yeah. And I last kind of part of the story, but I remember vividly us panicking and having this conversation with my dad and saying, do we go back? Do we not go back? Do we leave the country? Do we stay? And he tells me that it, when we make this decision, our lives are going to change forever. You know, we're going to be refugees. We're not going to be living, you know, the same life that we've been living this past, well, you know, in my case, 21 years. So it's going to be a very difficult decision and we're not going to make it until we have to leave. We're not going to make this decision. I think that's also kind of the process that a lot of people were going through in their brain to kind of fathom the fact that you are, you know, a refugee, your country is yeah. at war. That is a yeah. very difficult psychological kind of um, realization to come to. And so, you know, you obviously want to put out of your head and you want to take like take take this decision uh, as late as possible because you don't want to believe it. And there are so many people who still haven't haven't yeah. decided to leave, yeah. even though, of course, I mean, some of them are elderly, some of them have family members to take care of. But for a fact, I know that, you know, my mother stayed at our house until the very last moment when there were literally Russian tanks approaching our village even though I begged her to leave for weeks and weeks, but she didn't want to go. Does anyone, I mean, two months later, does anyone still get a weird feeling when we say things, you know, when the war started, before the war, after the war? I mean, I, I'm sitting here listening to this, and even though I've almost become accustomed to it already after two months, I still feel like this is, what, 1930? I mean, the conversations that I have with some people it's, it's so, it's so weird. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. I really have to stop and look around and say, you know, where, what point of history am I actually living in right now? Because there, it's so much deja vu from what I read in the history books. And it's so weird to actually be living it and to sit here and think that we're actually in the midst of this and we're going through it. And in however many years, people are going to be talking about these historical events and you're going to be able to say, you know, I, something that I really like is always seeing the newspaper headlines from like the historical newspaper headlines from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, of what was happening on that day. And it's going to be so weird to see the headlines um, from 10, from like today in 10 years and remember exactly where I was on that day and exactly what I was doing and exactly kind of everyone's contribution on that day. And it just feels like we're really living, living history. And it still is a bit unsettling to me, even today. It's definitely, definitely crazy to realize because, you know, especially all of us, you know, as people who are invested in politics or who study politics, who read all of these things, we tend to think that we, you know, sort of understand what it's like. I mean, before the war happened, right? Like I, you watch all of these movies, you read all of these books, you talk to people, you know, from countries that are at war and you, and you try to empathize and you try to understand what that's like. But remember, Kat, we've had these conversations that the moment it was it were our city, cities that were getting bombed, the level of understanding 
just skyrockets immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and you feel this weird solidarity, you know, with people in Syria, people in Iraq, people in Palestine, all over the world. And, and you feel like there's no one else who can really truly understand you but them and Ukrainians. And I think that this is true. There is this fundamental gap in yeah. uh, understanding and just perception of the world between someone who's lived through, through war and someone who hasn't. And there is no way to fill that gap other than going through the same experience. And this is actually something that's very problematic, of course, because it influences, you know, policymaking and uh, research and um, academia. So I remember Kat having this discussion with you that really feel so much more connected with our, with our friends who, who, who've had similar experiences. I think that's something that's really changed for me having gone through it myself is especially this new level of empathy with people in other conflict zones and that have gone through this in their home countries as well. And I think that I've noticed this especially in um, the world of Instagram activism in a way, because when I, I have a lot of friends that are very politically active and are constantly posting, and I've always constantly seen on my feed photos and news from all over the world about all other conflicts that are happening. And obviously it's impacted me, but it, it hasn't impacted me nearly as much as it does today. Because when I see a photo of rubble after a bombing, or I see a photo of a building that's been, that's charred because it got burnt, or I see photos of, you know, refugees coming in and out. And that to me, even what, no matter where it is, whether or not it's in Ukraine, but all over the world, seeing that really, really strikes a chord with me today. And I just can't really describe it, but it's just seeing anyone going through this, I can understand it on a whole different level. And when I see people posting about it now, I can, it, it really takes a moment out of my day and I stop and think, wow, I wonder how they are. I wonder how they're feeling. And it genuinely, you know, as you said, Nastya, like there's this solidarity that I think we're buying into and this community of people all over the world that are going through, that are suffering through different conflicts that are unfortunately kind of brought together through this. But I've also made a lot of friends and a lot of close relationships with people from countries that have gone through conflict because of this reason, because they can understand and the mutual understanding and empathy that's there. So I've kind of expanded my worldview a lot through this. I entirely agree. Um, and it's actually extremely therapeutic for me on many levels to talk about people who've gone through the same thing. And I remember having maybe one of the darkest days since the war began, I was just extremely, extremely upset. And I cried a lot that day. And I was just thinking about Mariupol and, you know, Bucha and other cities. And I just DM'd my friend, my uh, Hakam, shout out to you if you're listening to this. Uh, you know, my friend from Syria, I, I, I DM'd him and, and I was like, dude, just tell me that this gets better, you know, because I knew that him coming from Aleppo there are really very few people who can understand what I'm going through right now, and he's one of them. And unfortunately, he told me that he can't really say that it does get better, and it depends on many circumstances. And we went on to have this, you know, very nuanced political discussion. But, you know, then the other day, I was also at a conference, and I met these two amazing women, one from Georgia and one from Chechnya. And both of them, of course, wanted to, you know, share their emotions and, and, and also talk about their experiences, but they felt very embarrassed, and, and they kept on telling me, you know, this isn't about us right now. It was about us, you know, back in the 90s or back in 2008. 
they felt really bad bringing Georgia and Chechnya up in our conversations. But I told them like, no, you, you shouldn't feel bad about it because it's very, very therapeutic for me to hear that, you know, what I'm, ha- what I'm going through, all of these extremely traumatic experiences, that this is completely normal. You know, this, it, my feelings have to be validated. And feelings of all Ukrainians right now have to be validated. That's a part of why we're doing this podcast is for us to, you know, share all of these grievances for people to see that this is completely normal. It's normal to feel hate. It's normal to feel rage. It's normal to feel things you've never felt before because this is, you know, a very unique circumstance. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. Um, I think that's also why I find that, you know, of talking even to Ukrainians, I like randomly meet sometimes, you know, at a refugee center, at um, at the train station that are, you know, basically leaving the country. To, and protests. To, yeah. To, uh, to, it's so easy to connect with Ukrainians now. I feel like, I mean, I sometimes, I mean, kind of joke about this and I say that it feels like we're best friends right away because the moment you say Ukrainian, you already know that they understand you and there's definitely going to be a lot of points of connections that other people just don't and they can't understand. And I feel like we've all met a lot of wonderful new people that have become a really close friends since the start of the war because in, you know, in the first five minutes of conversation, you already feel like you've opened up your soul to the other person. <laughs> when we're talking about living history, really feeling that because um, day by day, I mean, I, I think we tend to forget that it's only been uh, a little over, what, like 76 76 days or 77 days of the war and it feels like very little uh but you because you live through every day very vividly and you live through it differently and I think that I mean for me I like see the difference in my mentality and my thinking and my perception of the war day by day based off of what I see not only in the news uh and how I interact with the war but also how I interact with other people and kind of how I like learn to live with like the trauma that we're all going through day by day. So for example, Nast, I know that, I mean, for you, especially uh, when, you know, Bucha was happening and what was happening with your mom, um, like, how did that feel? And like, did, like, how did your emotions change, I guess, from the beginning to where, where you are now? I'd say the worst thing for me that I just, you know, I kept on thinking about the fact that, you know, especially when people began saying that, oh, Ukraine is, might be the second Syria, that this can go on for years. And that was terrifying the shit out of me because I kept on thinking that the last thing I want to do right now is to learn to live with it. You know, learning to live with it was just, it, it seemed like the most unjust thing ever. And it seemed like it was the worst thing from people to expect from us. You know, I, I had this phase where, I was just in denial to the fact that, you know, I still had to go to my university lectures. I still had a job. I still had, you know, friends who I had, whose messages I had to respond to. All of that collectively seemed extremely unfair to me because, you know, I thought, how come people expect for me to continue living my normal life, right? Like all I wanted for a few weeks was just to sit there, cry and be comforted. I, and I know that, of course, realistically, that's not how, you know, you, you, you end up, it's, it's not what you end up doing and it's not what you should end up doing, um, you know, because we all have goals and life, life goes on, etc. But, you know, when you're in this dark moment, psychologically, all I wanted to do is to just be a victim. And all I wanted to do is just to sit there and, uh, 
and be sad. And I, I didn't want to be strong. I didn't want to live, you know, learn to live with it. I didn't want to persevere. All of that seemed completely ridiculous to me that anyone would expect me to because the amount of suffering was just so grand that it was unbearable. And on Bucha, uh, what you brought up, Agata, my family house is in this little village, Stoenka too. It's just a few minutes away from Irpin and around 10 minutes away from Bucha where hundreds and possibly thousands, but we don't know this yet, civilians were murdered brutally and tortured by Russian soldiers. So all of these places, you know, that are now associated with wars, genocide, massacre, etc., all of those places are places where I grew up. They're places where I had family dinners, where I lived. This is the place that I call home in the most literal sense, not just broadly Ukraine, but literally, you know, towns where I grew up. So yeah, it was just a suffering of a, of a scale I, I, I didn't even know I was capable of. But at the same time as all of this is happening, it sounds crazy, but I also feel, feel immense privilege because I'm alive and I don't know anyone who was killed personally. And the fact that this is the level of privilege that Ukrainians have, some Ukrainians have, is, is terrifying to me. One of the things that I learned about going through suffering and going and the emotional trauma of dealing with this in the past two months, honestly, has not only just been the power of um, the power of rage and how much suffering one can really handle before they reach a breaking point, but it's also taught me a lot actually about love, I think. And that's something that surprised me because I think that now more than ever, if I had to say what I'm coming out of this, like what emotional, what my emotional state is like right now, I would say that I just have the things that I've learned in the past two months about what it means to love something and what it means to love Ukraine have really gotten me through this. Because I mean, I knew before the war that I loved Ukraine, but I don't think I really understood kind of the depth of that and what love is and what it makes you do. When thinking about one of my darkest days during the war. I just remember having that same feeling, Nastya. I remember sitting there just wanting to turn everything off and cry and give up and not get up until everything's over and just, you know, let myself wallow in the sorrow. And when I was having that day and that darkest moment, I remember just lying there and thinking, no, you know what? I'm not going to do this out of sheer love for my country because I need to see Kiev again. I will see it again. I'll see it liberated. And so I got up and picked myself up out of, I mean, I guess this is a mixture of anger and love at the same time because it was also just sheer spite. I said, no, I refuse to kind of lay down and let them take that away from me. And I will not let myself, you know, wallow until I can do that in a liberated Kiev. And I remember just picking myself up and I, I was really just shocked and almost impressed by the level, the, the level of love that I felt that it was enough to get myself out of such a dark, dark moment that all I needed to get out of that dark moment is to get up and think about Kiev and get up and think about Ukraine. And it taught me a lot about what it means because I think love in the past two months, like loving Ukraine has meant a lot of sacrifice. It's meant putting that above your personal life and doing everything you can and spending every minute thinking about it and working towards it. And it also is something that really helps get you through this. I don't think that I would be able to get through this if I didn't have this love. And I think 
that's what we're going to come out of this. I mean, Ukrainians love their country. Everyone sees that now and it's going to make us stronger because of it. That's also why we went to Poland. Like we made that decision because we said, you know what? No, right now we're going to go and do something which matters a lot more than, you know, what what we're feeling. Uh, and we can think about that later and, you know, be that good or bad. But I think that's something that's also why uh, people really saw Ukrainians as being so powerful because so many people did that in the beginning of the war. And some people are still doing that because that's we really see it as maybe like a given as a duty of what we have to do. Exactly. And I keep on being asked these questions because, you know, someone who is from the West and who, who isn't really, you know, truly connected to what's happening, they all, put, they all try to portray me or my friends or my colleagues as these heroes, you know, and I say, you know, we're not we're not dying for our country. Those people are heroes. We are doing the absolute minimum. And I never really know what to say to those people who, who you know, try to flatter us and, and be so nice and so encouraging. Because to me, I don't think any of us are really doing anything special. We're yeah. doing the bare minimum to survive. And we, we, none of us have ever had second thoughts yeah. on whether we could do something else. I remember one of my professors telling me when I was sharing with him, you know, how tough this is. I, I know he wasn't really being serious because he knows I'd never do it. But he sort of gave me another option. And he was like, you know... Nastya, you you don't really have to do this. You didn't have to leave friends. You, you you didn't have to go and, you know, kind of put your regular 20-year-old life on pause for this. You know, you still have an option to opt out. But to me, that that was never an option. And I think for millions of other Ukrainians, doing something else other than volunteering and devoting your entire existence to saving your country and saving your people right now, we never had that option. We never considered it. Exactly. It almost it was a given. The moment the war started, it was as if, okay, we know exactly what we need to be doing. You don't have to tell us. Like, we already feel it deep down. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said, Nastya, about this really being a matter of survival is very true because I feel the same way when people say, you're so brave, you're very strong. And Ukrainians absolutely are very brave and very strong. But at the same time, what I tell people is if your very existence was under threat, this is basic survival instinct really like everything that I'm doing it's just every survival instinct that I've ever built up from centuries of Ukrainian oppression we probably could have continued talking about this for hours and hours but for today we'll just stop it here we wanted this episode to be an introduction into who we are as hosts but also a bit of a historical record of that night and the few hellish days that followed we'll be back next week thank you for listening